Every year, the IACR Real World Cryptography Symposium brings together researchers, engineers, and practitioners in applied cryptography to discuss cryptography that matters in the real world. To me, this is the big one, the one cryptography conference that matters the most. Who needs proceedings when you've got so much excitement in the air and so many results and projects that actually have a measurable impact on how cryptography affects the real world? This year's program is maybe the most exciting yet, with talks on secure channel protocols, multi-party computation, formal methods, post-quantum cryptography, humans, policy and cryptography, hardware, cryptocurrency, cryptography for the cloud, anonymity, and more. So many exciting talks, so much new research to discuss. Like every year, real-world crypto is shaping up to be a veritable who's who of applied cryptography. In this special episode of Cryptography FM, I'm joined by fellow researcher Benjamin Lipp in order to just candidly go through the program of Real World Crypto 2021 and covering each talk's abstract briefly and just saying what we think about it. We're going to have another special episode after Real World Crypto 2021 as a post-conference episode in order to discuss the highlights of the conference. And hopefully we'll do this every year right here on Cryptography FM. Benjamin Lipp is a PhD student at INRIA Paris in the Prosecco research team. He is enthusiastic about cryptography and more specifically cryptographic protocols. His research focuses on the mechanization of cryptographic security proofs, mainly for real-world protocols, how opportune and on formally linking such proofs to implementations. Uh, he recently published a new paper, a mechanized cryptographic proof of the WireGuard virtual private network protocol in the IEEE Euro S&P 2019 uh, conference in Stockholm, Sweden. Hey, Ben. Hi, Nadim. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, sure. I can't just talk to myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, uh, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, this is a um, 
special episode where it's not really like an interview like the previous episodes. We just go through the program of Real World Crypto. Basically, we're going to do it one by one, and hopefully listeners will get an idea of what the program is like, and that may basically give them a way to prepare for the conference. Given that this it's I mean, have you looked at the program? It's huge. There are so many. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about this conference too. Very looking forward to it. Yeah, this is the best program I've seen for a real world crypto. And maybe, I mean, this is very subjective, but one of the best programs I've ever seen in general. And I'm wondering if they pulled this off because of the fact that it's remote or is that a coincidence? Oh, I didn't think about that. Like, is is the fact that the program is so good related to the conference being remote or were they going to have such an amazing program anyhow? And we just like, I guess, uh, it's too bad that it's COVID and we're not going to have to do it online. You mean they they might have more people speaking because they can do it remote and don't need Possibly, to travel? Yes, yes. I don't not know, impossible. or maybe, or maybe somehow magically the program was able to be organized in a way that is nicer and, and allowing more material. I don't know, but it's definitely you know it's the first time this conference happens remotely, and it's also you know this program is pretty pretty nuts. Um, there's so many different topics, you know, secure channel protocols, post quantum crypto, group messaging, policy, uh, hardware, formal methods, cryptocurrency, cloud crypto, anonymity. There's so much to go through. All right, so let's get started. Um, so it starts off with uh, secure channel protocols. We have this first talk robust channels handling unreliable networks in the record layers of Quick and DTLS 1.3. Are you familiar with this, Ben? Uh, not with this paper, no. I mean, I I know about Quick and DTLS. Um, and I know of other work of the authors. So they, I mean, they previously worked on TLS, if I remember correctly. So this ought to be interesting. Yeah, so this is, we, we established that Quick and DTLS 1.3 achieve the desired level of robustness. Notably, though, the robust behavior translates to a practically relevant security degradation when compared to TLS 1.3. The security bounds we establish have led the responsible IETF working groups to mandate concrete forgery limits. Okay, so this is a comparative security analysis, I guess, to TLS 1.3, and they uh, try to bring those more lightweight protocols up to speed, if I'm reading correctly. Yeah, and also uh, it's a uh, oh sorry, yeah, and also it's a well a paper that directly uh, influences the work on an IETF standard. Well, obviously, quick and DTLS, so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it fits to to real world crypto. Yo. indeed. Okay, sounds interesting. And uh, then we have the raccoon attack. Finding and exploiting most significant bit oracles. Uh, this is a this is one of those uh, attacks that had the fancy website with a cute logo, right? Which, right, which yeah. means that all of that us report. have heard about it. Um, have you have you have you heard about this, Ben? I think it was all over Twitter. Yeah, uh, when was it already? Uh, it's it's just a few months ago. So Raccoon is a timing vulnerability in the TLS specification that affects HTTPS and other services that rely on SSL and TLS. 
These protocols allow everyone on the internet to browse the web, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Raccoon allows attackers under certain conditions to break the encryption and read sensitive communications. The vulnerability is really hard to exploit. Oh, they actually say that up front. That's pretty good. <laughs> and relies on very precise timing measurements and on a specific server configuration to be exploitable. Yes. So I, I remember Matthew Green tweeted about this. That's how I heard about it. And he uh, basically also summarized the attack. And I recall that basically this is a very, very sort of hard to... like the. the I don't really recall how it works, but I recall that it basically combined a bunch of different vectors in a way that was very creative. And uh, they do make a point of, of mentioning how hard it is to exploit because once you read the paper, you're like, wow, this is like a real Mission Impossible style uh, attack, but it's very creative in the way that it combines all these vectors together. Have you had a chance to look at it? Um, not so much, but I had a chance to look a lot at the next paper, actually, <laughs> if I might uh, use this as a as a transition um, partitioning. Oh, good, because I have no idea what this is. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> partitioning Oracle attacks. It's, it's kind of amazing to see a title that's three words, you know, these days. It's like all these, all these titles, you know, like blah, 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 colon, blah, 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 blah. It's like <laughs> two sentences to. Yeah. yeah. So what are, what are partitioning Oracle attacks? So partitioning Oracle attacks, um, they, this came actually, um, up during my work on a new IRTF standard, which is called Hybrid Public Key Encryption. And we were actually contacted by the authors of this paper, uh, specifically by Julia Len, because they found a vulnerability in HPKE. And um, the vulnerability is based on the fact that certain cryptographic systems use so-called non-key committing encryption, symmetric encryption, which means that the ciphertext is not bound to a specific key. So you could craft a ciphertext that decrypts under a lot of different keys. And you can use Wait this... Wait a minute. Isn't this, uh, have you, did you listen to the episode? Maybe it was episode 10 on when we had... Um... Ange Albertini and Stefan Kroelbill talking about key commitment in uh, authenticated encryption and how you could get uh, authenticated encryption to decrypt uh, under multiple different keys. I think I did not catch up uh, on this yet, no. I wonder whether it's related, but uh, so far what you're describing, you know, uh, against the widely used authenticated encryption with associated data schemes, including ASGCM, I'm sure this is related. This is interesting because what they did in their paper, um, so these researchers at Google and Amazon and I think the University of Haifa in Israel published a paper where they exploit the fact that you have all of these programs and web services that encrypt stuff using ASGCM, but they don't commit to the key. So you can um, reasonably decrypt using a different key and then decryption would, would succeed, uh, quote unquote, but you would get a different uh, ciphertext than the one that was intended. And if you combine that with some knowledge of file formats, you could basically get a PDF that can decrypt into two different, or a ciphertext that can decrypt into two different PDFs. Oh, right. That that one I've seen, right? And they, yes. they even made it such that uh, the PDF of the paper 
decrypts to another file format. Was something, that? yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, uh, Albertini always does this. You know, you have uh, a Doom game that decrypts into Windows 95. I don't know, there's something, you know, a, a PDF that turns into a JPEG. And if you open the JPEG inside a LaTeX parser, you get Minesweeper. It's this always crazy stuff like this. But I'm sorry, is this related? Is this, is, is this related to the notion of key commitment that they were exploiting? Uh, it sounds it sounds related, but I think the goal is different here. So with partitioning Oracle attacks, you can speed up um, brute force or rather dictionary attacks to retrieve uh, something like a pre-shared key. For example, in hybrid public key encryption, there is a mode where you can incorporate a pre-shared key and you could use a partitioning Oracle attack to retrieve this pre-shared key if it's uh, lower entropy. And how this would work is that you partition the space of possible keys into, well, two partitions, and you create one ciphertext that would decrypt under all keys of the one partition and another ciphertext that decrypts under all the other keys. And basically, well, you do divide and conquer until you um, find the key. Yeah, so it's that's a, a, just a more sophisticated version of, of that attack, I think. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Uh, cool. And uh, did, were you guys able to fix the uh, uh, flaw in HPKE? Well, in HPKE, we, we are a bit lazy and we just say that HPKE shall only be used with high entropy pre-shared keys. So basically, we disallow the usage of passwords of low entry passwords. I see. I see. But in the in their paper they apply it to well they attack a whole bunch of schemes. Uh I don't know how all these schemes mitigate the the attack, but um it's very well laid out how they attack uh, all these schemes and how they mitigate the issue. Mm-hmm. Um so maybe we should so maybe you, you want to talk about HPKE for a second because I believe that uh, you've been working on HPKE for a while. I think you were part of the team that came up with that construction. And also you've been formalizing it using um, the computational theorem prover, CryptoVerf. Maybe you'd like to talk right. for a minute about that. Okay. Yeah, my pleasure. So hybrid public key encryption is a very old idea, right? We we use asymmetric encryption to distribute a symmetric key and the actual data is then encrypted using a symmetric scheme just for efficiency reasons. Um, so while this idea is very old, there is no standard that does everything right. So all, all the standards that have been around either lack test vectors or don't use modern crypto, etc. So in the context of messaging layer security, this new uh, effort of creating a secure group chat protocol, the need for a hybrid public key encryption scheme came up and it was decided to standardize it separately, like in a, in a proper, with a proper um, chem-dem uh, composition scheme. So you use a key encapsulation mechanism to 
distribute a symmetric key to the recipient and then a DEM, a data encapsulation mechanism to use this symmetric key to encrypt the actual data. And this standard just like writes this down very properly, has test vectors and specifies it with modern crypto. And I've got involved in this um, a year ago uh, when Kartik, uh, one of my PhD advisors, asked me to to write proofs for it <laughs> and it escalated a bit. So I found some minor inconsistencies. So I ended up becoming a co-author of the standard. And yeah, now it's heading for publication. It should be ready soon. And so people can go ahead and use it. It will be used in in TLS for um, encrypted server name indication and in MLS, uh, the group chat protocol, for um, to, to encrypt uh, new key material. Very nice. That's, that's the two big protocols, more or less, uh, these days. Um, cool, excellent. So let's move on. We have, um, yes, let's talk about the break. Aha, terrible. Wait, wait, okay. we forgot, we forgot uh, the last paper in the TLS in, in the security. Oh chain. my goodness. Oh my goodness. That's right. Ah, wow. This is actually, so this paper is, is exactly the title of the first episode of Cryptography FM. Post-quantum right. That's, uh, yeah. with cams instead of signatures. This is episode. This is this is the paper that I launched the podcast with, and indeed we had uh, Douglas Tibila and Tom Wiggers on the show, and then Sofia Celli on another episode. Um, I'm going to talk about this one because because I, I interviewed those people. So basically, uh, TLS uh, 1.3 came out, and it's this major upgrade, right, uh, for TLS. Um, but it is not necessarily uh, completely resistant to quantum, um, uh, you know, quantum computers coming out like using Shor and Grover algorithms to to break stuff. So these guys replaced handshake signatures with CAMs, key encapsulation mechanisms, which was interesting because you post quantum CAMs, right? So they achieve post quantum security by removing quantum vulnerable signature schemes and replacing them with quantum non vulnerable, quantum safe. Um, encapsulation mechanisms. And I thought that was interesting because intuitively the way that a chem works is not like the way that a signature works. You know, if, if you're modeling them symbolically, at least, or computationally, um, signatures operate in a vastly different sort of um, interface than chems. You know, so with a signature, you have like a, you sign, you value, you produce that value, you produce its signature, and then you verify that signature. Uh, and with chems, it's more like um, I'm encrypting a key you know, and sending it over to using public key cryptography. Uh, but they managed to um, substitute the use case in TLS 1.3 such that the key encapsulation mechanism interface can substitute the signature interface. And then you don't have to deal with post-quantum signatures, which are not as performant as post-quantum key encapsulation mechanisms. And if you look at NIST, what NIST has been standardizing, they've been standardizing post-quantum CAM and post-quantum signatures. And post-quantum CAMs in general are more performant. Uh, it's always it's always like that, right? Like when when we were when they were standardizing elliptic curve crypto, um, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman was more performant than elliptic curve signatures, if I recall correctly. Um, it seems like signatures always start off being slow. DSA for sure is ultra slow, but you know that's that's ancient history, so maybe maybe it's not a good comparison. Um, okay, so moving on, we have uh, group messaging. 
mesh messaging and large scale large scale uh, protests breaking bridgefy have you heard of bridgefy yeah wasn't this that application that was hyped um and suddenly very much used and um yeah i mean and then several security issues came up yeah so apparently, yeah, it was used, uh, according to the abstract of the paper, it was used in Hong Kong, India, Iran, in the US, Zimbabwe, Belarus, and Thailand. It is also being promoted as a communication tool for use in such situations by its developers and others. In this work, we perform a security analysis of BridgeFi. Our results show that BridgeFi permits its users to be tracked, offers no authenticity, no effective confidentiality, protections, lacks resilience against adversarially crafted messages, will betray you and kidnap your children, and I don't know, like, frame you for tax fraud. <laughs> this seems like a pretty terrible app. Um, we verify these vulnerabilities by demonstrating a series of practical attacks. Thus, if protesters rely on BridgeFi, an adversary can produce social graphs about them, read their messages, impersonate anyone to anyone, steal their food, and shut down the entire network with a single maliciously crafted message. Wow. Shut down the entire network with a single... I mean, just, they just went to town on this thing. This is like totally... It looks broken. Yeah, they have, they have nuked it from, from orbit, like low-orbit ion. Do you know this meme, like the low-orbit ion cannon? <laughs> You know these old uh, strategy games like Red Alert and uh, Command and Conquer Generals and and uh, Tiberian yeah. Sun, where you have like you can build these super weapons and one of the super weapons is like this cannon that fires from space. Never mind. Um, as a result, we conclude that participants of protests should avoid relying on bridge fire until these vulnerabilities are addressed. So here's a question. I have a I have a cool question uh, about this. So um, does it matter that this research gets published? You know, you, we've had Telegram. So maybe, maybe Telegram is better now. But in the old days, a few years ago, Telegram used to have security problems regularly. And it, this did not seem to impact its adoption. And so do you think that this sort of security research actually has an impact on who ends up using um, those apps. And does that even matter? You know, even if it doesn't have an impact or does have an impact, I don't know. Like uh, it's, I mean, it's great research. I'm not, I'm sure this paper is fantastic. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, breaking this app uh, illustrates a lot of very important techniques and very important uh, lessons to be learned about the actual reality of these applications. But will this maybe Will this necessarily make the app safer? Will this necessarily make people, if, if it doesn't change, will they stop using it? You know, like what is the real world impact on the users of this app? I wonder if this is discussed. Very good question. Yeah, it would, would be good to, to see if they discuss it. But I mean, my guess is that, well, for most people, it will not change if they use the app or not, right? They, they don't care so much. Like a lot of Telegram users don't care about privacy they care about the bots and and the, the emojis yeah but maybe for some people that actually care about security it will make a difference and that's where it's important because they can then make an informed decision and start using another app this is true yeah there was an article in Ars Technica I guess news goes around this is oh yeah fine uh, I recently had to download Telegram because I had a client that only uses Telegram and I loaded up the client on my desktop and it was like 
like the emojis are like being like uh, waterboarded into a rainbow, essentially. Uh, it's, you get flooded with these extremely animated emojis of like Rick and Morty, and I don't know like how many. This is pretty incredible. I've never seen an app so colorful and full of animations. And I, yeah, I guess this is what people care about for sure. I remember a long time ago, a uh, very long time ago, like in 2015 or even earlier, 2013, Moxie Marlin Spike was, was this is what emojis, like not, not animated things, like even when emojis became a thing, first became a thing. Moxie was, was saying, um, wow, people you know, don't care about encryption, but once you put emoji support, you know, people go crazy. Okay. Yeah, and one interesting thing here is actually that um, companies and organizations that develop such apps seem to have understood that people care about emojis more than they care about security so they will hold off introducing some new fancy emoji feature until they have to push a security update and they they will um, package it together yeah so, and then everyone updates immediately because oh my right, god because the the new shithead emoji and then yeah. they also <laughs> get there's, the there's a new emoji with, with with a cat holding a donut or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, I hope I hope this news gets around, or maybe Bridgeify uh, improves its security. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, moving on, end-to-end encryption and identity properties for Zoom meetings. Oh boy. Yeah. I think you have uh, some. Uh, yeah, some I have some familiarity with this. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, Zoom. So Zoom bought um, Keybase, which was this project by the, uh, oddly enough, the uh, former um, people behind OkCupid, the dating website. Oh, I did. And yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And uh, they, you know about Keybase, right? Keybase was an, quite frankly, like a very good project. And um, yeah. it was like this sort of project where you build a, actual PKI with actual features and actual stuff around PGP that actually works and actually has real world features and stuff. And man, that was like a real, like Keybase was like this sort of like enormous engineering effort. And they had Keybase chat and Keybase like files and, and Keybase PKI and like all of this stuff built around PGP and it was extremely usable. I wonder if there's, if it's still going, like if I go to their website, if I go to keybase.io, um, things look pretty normal. I think it's still there. That's surprising. What happens if I click on jobs? Oh, yeah. If you click on jobs, it redirects you to the Zoom careers. Maybe Zoom is like giving it a lifeline or something. I mean, frankly, if I were Zoom, I would definitely keep Keybase alive for sure. Um, and uh, anyway, so this, they they Zoom suddenly became popular because of the world death zombie apocalypse pandemic. And um, their security was was pretty bad. And then they hired a security team. And so Keybase was the available one, I guess, which is a pretty good, a pretty good hire. But they basically acquired, acquired the entirety of Keybase and got them into working on this new encryption protocol. And uh, they published a paper on this new encryption protocol on GitHub. Uh, detailing what they're planning to do. And then the CEO of Keybase in the summer came out and said, uh, we will not roll out encryption for um, free Zoom users. It'll be a paid-only feature. And then, and uh, this is just the most incredible thing, they had uh, Key, uh, Zoom had hired the 
former chief security officer um uh he was he was um like handling that for them and then he had to deal with the ceo of zoom saying no no we don't want to enable end-to-end encryption for free tier users because we want to help out law enforcement have a good relationship with the fbi and this is literally word for word what he said like we would like to have a positive relationship with the fbi this is like Positive relationship, FBI, these are the words that were used. I'm not sure they were used in that order, but I'm, I'm basically quoting verbatim. And then you had uh, Stamos twisting it to be like, we're talking about safe communities online. You know, we want to keep people safe. What if your children were using Zoom and someone Zoom bombed them? How would you feel about that? And I'm like, man, um, Facebook had developed message franking which was this whole thing that they developed and papers have been published on it and it's this like encrypted abuse reporting mechanisms and you're you're supposed to know about it because you were the cso of the chief security officer of facebook but apparently maybe he had a lapse of memory at that point who knows uh when you're when when you have your hands in as many pies as alex stamos i guess uh, things tend to slip um but uh, ultimately, they decided to make it available for all uh, users, and that's uh, that's that's a great thing. Um, I wonder whether. So hold on. Let's look at the abstract here. Yes. So Zoom is working hard on improving security for its users, and actually, I use Zoom recently. It's pretty good. It's quite a usable application. It had a lock, and if I click on it, it told me that it's using ASGCM for encryption. Very um, nice. It's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah. In this talk, I will first describe our improved end-to-end design, report on our progress deploying it, and comment on some lessons we learned across the way. Then I will look to the future and present our vision for user identity protocols. I will argue why it matters, discuss the issues which make this problem hard, and how we plan to address them. Sounds good. Um, have you looked at this protocol at all? Uh, frankly, no, I did not. Uh, so yeah, this looks like a pretty well-written paper. It's uh, It covers everything. This is this is definitely like Keybase-style stuff because whenever Keybase rolled out the Keybase file system, Keybase chat, they always had similar stuff, uh, similar specifications written in a similar way. I definitely think that this is more of a Keybase paper than um, like this is a pretty huge list of authors. I think probably... If they have so many authors from unit from a university background, they think they're working towards security proofs um, of of uh, uh, whatever it is that they came up with. Uh, that probably makes more sense. I don't know whether they'd be going for hand proofs or automated proofs, but probably for hand proofs, given the uh, expertise that's on board. Okay, so let's move on. Yeah. So the last paper in this session is Resolving Concurrency in Group Ratcheting Protocols by Paul Rösler, Evgeny Dodis, Alexander Bienstock. Um, so these authors have worked on ratcheting before. They, they have multiple papers on ratcheting. Um, so this one is on group ratcheting. So it, it's... Um, it's working for uh, messaging layer security, the protocol we already mentioned a couple of times during this episode. Mm-hmm. And it's about post-compromise security and how to um, 
how to guarantee post-compromise security in, for concurrent um, protocol sessions, if I understood that right. Post-compromise security for concurrent protocol sessions. Oh, wait, maybe not sessions. Um... So post-compromise security um, is basically forward secrecy and uh, future secrecy. It's what happens when your device gets stolen. Uh, in, in the world of secure messaging. If my phone gets stolen, if uh, the attacker in this sort of like arguably not very realistic threat model of if the attacker hacks into my phone and uh, steals my encryption keys for a period of like just a few seconds or something, uh, can they decrypt future or previous messages as well? And here we're looking at this being used in... This is... I have to say, this is not a very good abstract uh, for, for a conference. This is way too verbose. Um, let's see. Reaching post-compromise security in group messaging protocols so far either bases on N parallel two-way messaging protocol executions. Ah, yes, I see. Okay. So um, this is what Signal does right now, which is, and WhatsApp as well. They just, like if you have a group chat in Signal, as far as I know, and I, maybe this has changed recently, but I don't think so. The uh, it's just basically pairwise signal sessions with everyone in the group, and then you get forward secrecy that way, right? And this is what they're referring to here, or on so-called tree-based group routing protocols, and this obviously referring to MLS and TreeCam and uh, Art also uh, a synchronous routing tree. Both approaches have great restrictions. Parallel pairwise executions induce for each state update a communication overhead of O N. While tree-based protocols reduce this overhead to O log n, they cannot handle concurrent state updates. So is this like a new, better mechanism that also has PCS? Better than TreeCam? In this talk, we discussed the trade-off between PCS, concurrency, and communication overhead in the context of group ratcheting. In particular, we will explain why state updates concurrently initiated by T group members for reaching PCS immediately uh, necessarily induce a communication overhead of omega t. I this is this is come on, this is a bad abstract. I'm sorry, like an abstract is just you know, they. I don't even, I'm not even sure what the research result or the goal is yet. I'm, I'm just reading all of these um complexity measurements and com they, they compare it to other stuff. Uh, we present a pro okay. Finally, we present a protocol in which each group member can nearly immediately recover from exposures independent of concurrency in the group with almost minimal communication overhead. We believe that this result, beyond its applicability to MLS, uh, is also generally interesting and cool. Okay, so it's it's a TreeCam alternative with better post compromise security, and also it seems to be at least as efficient, right? It seems like, yes. I mean, this, this goes in the line of a lot of papers around messaging layer security, right? There is, um, yes. there is the, the working group and a lot of researchers are working on it, either trying to write proofs or trying to improve certain properties. And a lot of papers are being published um, on the topic of MLS. And if if certain propositions will end up being used in the in the final draft of the standard is unknown. I mean, this is ongoing discussion, I guess. 
Indeed, indeed. Also, the MLS standard is pretty far ahead now. I mean, you have, uh, I think, Wire, the uh, secure messaging company, uh, started working on OpenMLS, which is this sort of like standard implementation of MLS, uh, kind of, I guess, meant to be like the OpenSSL of MLS, maybe. Um, I don't know. But it, the standard is like, I wouldn't say it's completely finalized, but it's not not a baby standard anymore. Um, okay, so multi-party computation. Uh, the chair is Dave Archer, who we actually had on this podcast and uh, is, uh, I believe, a research director at Galois. Very, very impressive uh, formal cryptography company. Uh, all right. Less engine challenges in deploying heavy multi-party computation in different environments. It seems like an SOK paper, right? It seems like... Um... One may consider machines connected. So basically, people consider machines... I see. Okay. So this is like the trade-offs. Like, uh, what happens when you want to deploy multi-party computation and you don't have, like, a giant server in a data center? Oh, but it is um, applied to... A specific protocol right the talk will present what changes were made to the protocol and why so it's like a, a case study it seems like this is basically real world mpc yeah like what, what happens when you actually want to do mpc not in a controlled lab setting but in actual cool i'm looking forward to this one this looks really interesting especially because i know nothing about mpc and i mean <laughs> and that, so... that's what yehuda uh, lindell is doing right with his company yes Yes. Uh, what what are they called? Unbound, unbound tech. I don't know. I think I think he has a company. I think Yehuda Lindell has a company with Nigel Smart, doing multi-party computation, and it's called Unbound Tech. Yes, yes, that's the one. Moving on, the Red Wedding playing attacker in MPC ceremonies. Um, that. That title doesn't tell me anything. Uh, this talk aims to present the systematic process in reviewing the Diogenes paper and code, advancing it to a production-ready state. We will first provide background for the project and important details on its inner workings. We will describe our approach and framework to review crypto systems and describe the attacks we found and what lessons we can learn from them. Indeed. Okay, this is really cool. Um, I, like, I like this multi-party computation section, and I've never seen anything like it so far because... Multi-party computation, like formal methods, tends to be like this sort of niche thing in cryptography where there's this assumption that it's more, I guess, mathy and esoteric than the rest of cryptography. And this sort of like really uh, brings into the fold the real-world restrictions and like real-world information uh, and and real world applications of, of multi party computation and tries to link it more into like what can you actually do with this what are the restrictions with this how does it look like when we actually try to deploy it and this is something I love I really value this research a lot um, and uh, I've I've been tr trying to do the same thing obviously with with Verifpal and stuff like that but um, like look at this consistency between like we they highlight all of these things like consistency between paper specification and code awesome real world adversaries excellent collaboration between cryptographers and engineers the dangers of optimization and i want to ask you you know ben like 
it's so cool that we're finally seeing this. Like you have a section on something and all of it is like, okay, well, let's look if the spec actually matches the code. Let's look at the actual real world usage of this, you know, sort of like esoteric field. Let's look at the dangers of optimization. Let's look at whether cryptographers are actually talking to engineers. Why, why don't we see this more often? Like, why, why don't we see this more often at like proceedings conferences like, like SNP or, or I guess Usenix does have this sort of thing quite often. Um, but it does seem like the incentive for this sort of thing is kind of lacking, doesn't it, sometimes? Or is that, a, I hope that's not a leading question. Well, I mean, I can understand why we don't see such such things at crypto or Eurocrypt, right? Because their researchers are more interested in, in like theoretical foundations and stuff. Um, but yeah, for security and privacy, for SNP, I could imagine it, it should be interesting. Um, so yeah, so let's say it's it's good that real world crypto is filling this gap. Indeed, maybe maybe that's the whole point. I guess. I mean, you're not going to see this stuff at at, at Eurocrypt, and that's for a good reason. You know, no one's expecting it there. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just I'm I'm really glad that this is popping up more. I think that this sort of study is really important and hasn't been encouraged as much or or given as much breathing room before. And it's amazing. I, I hope we'll I hope we'll see this next year, not just for multi-party computation, but for literally everything, really. Like just there are so many things in cryptography where you can look at it and say, I would like to indeed highlight <laughs> consistency between paper, specification and code, real world adversaries, collaboration between cryptographers and engineers, dangers of optimization. This this is really important. I I I really hope that this gets more traction. Not just in multi-party computation. Okay. Legion, a maliciously secure MPC platform. Maliciously secure. Maliciously secure. What? MPC platform for federated analytics. This is a strange title. Maliciously secure analytics. I'm sure they will define this in the paper. (laughs) Many organizations tend to benefit from pooling their data together in order to draw mutually beneficial insights. Okay, then. Um, for fraud detection across banks, better medical studies across hospitals. However, such organizations are often prevented from sharing their data with each other by privacy concerns or like, I don't know, yeah, the HIPAA Act or something. We we present Legion, a system that allows multiple parties to collaboratively run analytical SQL queries without revealing their individual data to each other. Okay. Why, Why is this maliciously secure? Um... What does maliciously secure even mean? At the heart of Legion lies a new uh, MPC decomposition protocol that decomposes the cryptographic MPC computation into smaller units, some of which can be executed by subsets of parties and in parallel. Interesting. This looks like a sort of smart application of circuits. Uh, While preserving its security guarantees, Legion then provides a new query planning algorithm that decomposes and plans the cryptographic computation effectively, achieving a performance of up to 145x faster than the state of the art. Cool. Okay, so the title seems to be a bit cheeky, right? Like, I don't know how this qualifies as maliciously secure. It just qualifies as secure. Or maybe they meant maliciously secure in the sense of secure against malicious adversary. Yeah, probably something in this direction. but. I think this might actually be a pretty well-known uh, notion in the MPC literature oh, really? because they cite um, they cite uh, Goldreich from 2004 for this definition. So oh. it's just because us two are not very um, absolutely. I, I just googled maliciously secure, and you're right. Uh, I'm getting all of these tons of papers that that use this term. Um, 
And it does seem to be a multi-party computation thing. Efficient, maliciously secure multi-party computation for RAM from researchers at Bristol University and Barilan University. Uh, maliciously secure MPC platform for a little... Oh, that's, that's the paper. Um, maliciously secure framework for deep learning. Yes, okay. So this is a notion that seems to be a thing in multi-party computation at least and perhaps other fields as well. Okay. Um, signatures, ladder leak, ladder leak. That's another one we had on the show. Uh, we had uh, Akira Takahashi, we had uh, Mehdi Tibushi, Yuval Yarom, and uh, it was a pretty good show. So, have you heard about this, Ben? Uh, no, I didn't. So they, this whole the the title here is is kind of like a attractive title as well, like a sort of cheeky title. Uh, breaking ECDSA with less than one bit. Less than, which is like you know, Claude Shannon screaming, you know, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> um, and what it means is that basically you have to, um, uh, damn it, something to do with statistics, like you have to recover uh, a bit multiple times or something. I, I forget. They, they explain, go watch Cryptography FM. Uh, we interviewed these people. It's a great show, by the way. Um, episode. Eight, we had Yuval Yarom, Akira Takahashi, and Mehdi Tubushi on the show, and they explain what that means. I asked that specific question, and then I forgot what the answer was, but it's it's there. Um, and yes, they they look at uh, the way that um, elliptic curve cryptography is used, uh, ECDSA, in in some protocols, and uh, they're able to do some side channel analysis and break those protocols. They already got their own episode, so I'm going to move on. Um, MuSig2 simple to round schnorr multi-signatures um, Ben? Multi-signatures enable a group of signers to produce a single signature on a given message alright um, that sounds useful actually and so I guess MuSig2 is a new um, is a new scheme to well, to instantiate this functionality. Uh, it seems to have applications to cryptocurrencies. There's a proof of security under the one more discrete logarithm assumption and in the random oracle model. This looks great. Uh, I guess... I'm surprised that this isn't real-world crypto. This seems like a Eurocrypt talk or something. Not that, not that this is, you know, un, unfitting research. It seems quite excellent. I'm just wondering what the real-world sort of special thing about it is. Well, I mean, uh, papers presented at real-world crypto can be presented at other conferences, right? So I don't know where this was. I think, I think maybe it's that it's uh, it needs only two communication rounds. Maybe this is a special. I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not a signature scheme uh, expert. I'm, I'm quite ignorant about this topic, as a matter of fact. Um, maybe we should invite these people on the show. What are what are the real world benefits of your of your uh, signature scheme? Yeah, I, I guess I guess I, I just I don't know enough to really comment about this. 
Asynchronous Remote Key Generation, an analysis of Yubico's proposal for WebAuth. So do you use YubiKeys? I used to use a YubiKey indeed for my um, PGP key. But, uh, well, in my in my job, I don't have so much use for PGP actually. So I let it slide and don't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but it's, it's, it's really nice to see that these kind of like personal HSMs um, are popping up more and more and getting more and more um, usage in like yeah they're, they're compatible stuff. with everything yeah you know like they have NFC and then you can just log in even your phone can use yeah um, these tokens to like log into Google in the browser and you can sign code with them you can use SSH with them um, we examine they examine Yubico's recent proposal for recovering from the loss of a web auth authenticator key token thing HSM USB thing, by using a secondary backup authenticator, we analyze the cryptographic core of their proposal, the cryptographic core of their proposal by modeling a new primitive called asynchronous remote key generation. Asynchronous remote key generation, which allows some primary authenticator to generate unlinkable public keys for which the backup authenticator may later recover corresponding private keys. Huh which allows some primary authenticator to generate unlinkable public keys for which the backup authenticator... This is cool. It's cool to... I don't think this has been formalized before. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and it's that, that's really interesting for privacy on the web, right? Because you don't mm-hmm. want to... You don't want that like one online shop or whatever can, can link your logins between different accounts you might use on the same computer. So that's, that's really nice. So they're formalizing a new construction and they're saying that this formalization immediately applies to this hardware authentication hardware that exists mm-hmm. and this authentication hardware is tied to this protocol which also is used everywhere so that's that's really cool covers a lot of ground new new apps new formalization applies to hardware applies to a protocol and the way the hardware is linked to that protocol that's that's cool um to prove that recovered private keys can be used securely by other cryptographic schemes, such as digital signatures or encryption schemes, we model compositional security of ARKG using composable games by Brzuska, Chris Brzuska, AL, extended to the case of arbitrary public key protocols, as well as being more general. Our results show that private keys generated by ARKG may be used securely to produce unforgeable signatures. Damn. Okay, that okay. that's, sounds pretty yeah. good. Very comprehensive. I am looking at yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It's on, e- it's on ePrint. Yes, that's that's the same paper. Okay. Up to the next session. Humans. Policy and crypto, uh, mental models of cryptographic protocols, understanding users to improve security. Okay, so this is a uh, user study paper. Uh, I'm really happy to see this at the conference because um, I think that's useful. Um, I think, uh, well, I know of some research in this direction uh, that was presented at security standardization research I think mm-hmm. two years ago 
Um, and I think it's really important to like um, complement the theory work. So here they they work on mental models of HTTPS and cryptocurrencies. Okay. So what what is a mental model of of HTTPS? Well, a mental model would be how someone understands something, how somebody thinks about HTTPS. If if you if you if we tell a user, oh, this website is protected by HTTPS, what will this user then think about it? What will they think this means? What mm -hmm. do they think how it works? What do they think happens when it breaks? I guess um, maybe it will. I could also imagine it. Um, they could talk about like how the web browser tells a user if a website is secure or not. Maybe you remember these discussions about how browsers should display HTTPS. Should they display the, the, the letters? Should they display a green lock? Should they? Like, I think they should display a lock that increases in size depending on how secure the TLS <laughs> configuration is. <laughs> if you have if you have TLS 1.3 with like forward secrecy and whatever, and like you disallow TLS 1.1 and TLS 1.2, you get this giant lock that takes over 90% of your screen. And then you have to look at the bottom corner of your screen to read the website. And it's like shiny metal, like animated lock. And it, if you if you like click on the lock, you get like uh, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson's voice that says "secure" every time. And if uh, if you're running like SSL 3.0, you get this like terrible lock graphic. I, I think this is how we're going to communicate this to users. You know, just like exaggerated graphics. Like everything needs to be on fire if it's only HTTP. There's like this JavaScript effect that kicks in and the entire website lights up on fire. All the text is like burning, screaming, you know, like. So, so one interesting thing I just saw in the abstract is that um, here, especially our work on administrators' mental models of HTTPS revealed root causes for poor configurations that have a negative impact on security. So not only on the user side, but well, also on the, uh, administrator side, so user of a web server, like of. Uh... We have shown that administrators are often incapable of making informed decisions. Forward to this talk, and um, I'm curious to see if, if, like, what, like, uh, systemic problems they might have found in, like, documentation and manuals of HTTPS software. Mm -hmm. Indeed. This is this is also one of the reasons why real world crypto is is really cool, uh, in relationship to what we saw in multi party computation, right, where you have this encouragement of hardcore, well not hardcore, but like serious analysis of real world applications uh, and real world uh, usage. You know, like does the spec match the uh, code? Um, are people optimizing things correctly? And then here you have these studies that also like look even further into uh, usability and how this how stuff actually ends up getting rolled out and actually ends up getting used. So that is pretty cool. Uh, all right. 
Protecting cryptography against self-incrimination. This sounds like it has something to do with deniability. This talk explores a small yet crucial part of the United States Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination called the Foregone Conclusion Doctrine. Okay. This doctrine concerns a new chapter of the crypto wars in which the government issues subpoenas that compel people to decrypt their own devices under the penalty of contempt of court if they do not comply. Interesting. This talk will survey the use of compelled decryption by courts, provide a legal and technical description of the doctrine, and use a simulation-based definition to analyze the compellability of various cryptographic systems. Oh boy, this is a totally legal talk. I, I don't know what to say. Seems interesting, but I don't know anything about US law, so I have no comment. Yeah, but it sounds it sounds interesting and important. So, are you aware of a similar sort of thing in in European law, maybe German law? Um, yes. So, I mean, I'm aware of the discussion, but I don't know what the current state is. Uh, well, I mean, what I do know is that in in Germany, um, what what um, what activist organizations. Um, recommend you if police rings at your door is that you just shut down your computer such that the, mm -hmm. the full disk encryption kicks in. So yeah, I think they cannot force you to decrypt. I mean, that otherwise it wouldn't make sense. Funny story. Do you know um, Silk Road? Have you heard of Silk Road? Yeah. So Silk Road was this um, online thing, uh, online shop over... Uh, Tor, it operated as a Tor hidden service. What do you call them? Tor onion websites, dot onion yeah, websites. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it used Bitcoin as a payment mechanism. So it was fairly anonymous, at least back in the day. And then finally, the FBI found the person that's alleged to have been running it. And they found him at a library, at a public library in California. And he had his laptop open and they knew that if they came up and arrested him, there was a chance that he would turn off his laptop and that they wouldn't be able to recover evidence, right? Because they assumed that this, I don't know, they, they thought maybe that was going to happen. I guess they didn't know for sure. And so what they did was that they got two FBI agents to fake an, uh, an argument between a married couple inside the library. Um, some loud thing with, with a, a husband and a wife, you know, you don't love me anymore, something like that. And, um, and, um, um, uh, he got distracted. He came up to see what the commotion was, and then they snatched the laptop. Wow! And that is how they um, were able to ensure that there were no full disk encryption would kick in. Yeah, right. That's pretty involved. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 you know law enforcement professionals. I'm sure for them this was not not yeah. particularly yeah. hardcore. Probably do this all the time. Um. Okay. So we have an invited talk. Okay, so someone from the NIST post-quantum cryptography competition is going to give an update. All right. They announced the finalists recently, right? Round three finalists. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then there's a whole session on that, a whole session on post-quantum cryptography, uh, attacks on NIST post-quantum crypto third round candidates. Right. You just said, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, here are yes. the attacks. <laughs> yeah, here they are. Uh, so this is a, a list of attacks. Okay, so they do uh, side channel. This attacks. talk will contribute a full list of all attacks 
wow, found to date, but will primarily, for brevity, discuss a selection of the more in, of the more interesting and or important attacks. Oof. Um, I'm going to go through this section quickly because we're already at like an hour, 10 minutes. Oh, so, yeah. So the second one, I can say something about that, maybe. Sure, please. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it's uh, separate your domains, NIST, post-quantum crypto chems, and pitfalls in implementing random oracles. So in the in the key encapsulation mechanisms, usually they use at several stages in the chem a random oracle to like compute uh, an intermediary secret and also to compute the final um, symmetric key. And this is all fine, uh, like in a specification, as uh, like up until the point that you actually need to implement. The random oracle right in, in the specification you just write like h g for random oracles and then you need to implement them and it might happen that you implement them wrongly like you use the same random oracle for h and g and you could like it could happen that uh, you do not um, instantiate them such that they are actually independent random oracles and that's what this paper is about how do you take one random oracle and create multiple independent new random oracles out of them. And the practical relevance is that in reality, we usually have like one or two hash functions, like say SHA-3, but we need several independent random oracles for our proof to hold. So this paper discusses how well to, to create these independent random oracles. And it's motivated by the fact that they found in some post-quantum chem candidates uh, issues, security issues in in the random oracle instantiation. And this paper also motivated me to look uh, into random oracle domain separation more closely for the HPKE standard. So yeah, so in HPKE everything should be fine in this regard. Cool. Yeah, they take advantage of um, or, or or point out attacks arising from poor domain separation. Yeah. So uh, are these are these people that you were in contact with because of your work on HPKE? Uh, how is it that you're familiar with this work? Uh, I just found this ePrint um, online. Like, uh, I, I think they, they announced it on Twitter and I, I found it and read it and it reminded me uh, that, yeah, that, that I should look into this in HPKE. I mean, how you do domain separation usually for random oracles is that you prefix the, the input with like a label and you just make sure that you use different labels and that's it. But there is more sophisticated methods and they present these also in their paper. All right. Uh, Post-quantum crypto, the embedded challenge. Post-quantum crypto standards are coming. It doesn't matter if you believe in quantum computers or not. What is the impact on the billions of embedded devices? Using some typical embedded use cases, we outline the challenges and show some recent solutions in this area. That is literally the entire abstract. Okay. Have you, have you heard about this? It's I don't know. No, but I mean, I could imagine that they will be talking about um, key sizes, um, 
computation complexity, etc., and like say how this is possible to do on like some like IoT devices that are around or yeah. Cool. Sounds promising. All right, then we have Nightly Talks by Nigel, uh, well, uh, chaired by Nigel Smart. And uh, then it's an invited talk. I think this is the first invited talk, correct? Um, we already had the invited talk. Oh, yeah, we had the NIST protocol crypto, yeah. So uh, the and second all, one. And how could we forget the other one? There is uh, another invited talk by uh, Luca De Feo about isogenies. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, uh, at the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, no, not at the beginning, but just uh, a little bit uh, earlier in the program, right before the signature session. Are isogenies for real? Luca was also a guest that we had on the show. Uh, he was working on SIDH and Seaside, if I recall correctly. And yeah, okay, so this is the third invited talk. Privacy by design from theory to practice in the context of COVID-19 contact tracing. And it's given by Carmela Troncoso, who is a lead author on the DP3T decentralized pandemic tracing protocol. Yeah, this entire um, this entire uh, Wednesday, like one half of Wednesday will be about contact tracing, right? Because afterwards it's Vanessa who will talk also about uh, contact tracing, not as private as we had hoped, unintended privacy problems in some centralized and decentralized COVID-19 exposure notification systems. And then follows a session on contributed talks about contact tracing. Mm -hmm. Three of them. So have there been any new results? I feel like I feel like things sort of fell into place after Google and Apple adopted this uh, variant of DP3T, which is basically just DP3T uh, into their Android and iOS operating systems. And that was basically it. And so now I guess, have we moved into the stage of having these security analyses in the real world where we just look at deployments of DP3T and see how, how well it holds up in various scenarios? Where do you think the field is at at the moment? Um, I would hope that some of these talks will touch this subject and also talk about like the how useful these systems actually have been um, because I'm not yet aware of like yeah. an overview study comparing different countries etc because I, I don't think they've been very useful at all yeah I, that that's that's maybe unfortunately the case so i mean i i can only make some like um educated guesses i mean i can only compare france and germany for example i know that um, germany has been done a better job in let's call it marketing the system right even hackers in germany use contact tracing like uh, people in germany have developed a free software implementation of the pandemic tracing app so you can install it on your android phone without google apps etc and i think in france like nobody is using it like um like uh, yeah 
organizations like Quadrature du Net have made sure that nobody wants to use it, basically. <laughs> and in sure. Germany, um, organizations have made sure that it will be like a very privacy-respecting solution. And I think that worked out uh, pretty well. Yeah, the French the French rollout has been quite catastrophic, and um, we, we can talk about that some other time. Yeah. Um, but here's so here's a really interesting paper in the contact tracing session. Exposure notification systems may allow for large scale voter suppression. Voter suppression. Exposure notification is a system designed by Google and Apple. Not really. It's designed by the DP3T team and implemented by Google and Apple for notifying individuals when they have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 by coming in contact with someone who has tested positive for the virus. Uh, no user identifying data is ever uploaded to a central server. Users establish their proximity exclusively peer-to-peer -peer and anonymously with the sole purpose of knowing whether they have been in contact with an individual who may later be deemed to have been infected. The design choices of the protocols in question, which makes them robust against data collection attacks, unfortunately also makes them particularly susceptible to data injection by malicious parties. In particular, these protocols allow for a determined attacker to generate false exposure notifications on a massive scale and in an undetectable and unpreventable manner. In this paper, we highlight how these data injection attacks can be used to implement voter suppression in political elections and to compromise the integrity of the democratic process. Kind of feels like they're jumping to conclusions here. I mean, can you really go from injecting false notifications into apps to ruining elections? Well, if people would stay home because they get a notification and not vote, okay. But um... aren't, aren't you going to like kind of know something's up if your entire block gets a notification at the same time? <laughs> you know, election day. <laughs> you're you're in the supermarket and suddenly like dee -dee 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 -dee, just, like, poof, just like this like the entire monoprix is like going crazy over uh, i don't i obviously i'm joking i don't know if this is actually how it works but i don't know i mean i feel like i'm sure that there is value in exposing attacks but i don't know whether you can immediately say you know this attack's gonna shut down voting but well, you could do it a bit more subtle, right? You can notify one person there and another over there. Like um, maybe they don't know each other, right? You you send notifications to people who you believe would vote in a certain direction, like one in every neighborhood and throughout the entire country that like uh, sums up to quite some people. Yeah. All right, let's let's move on. We, we, we're going to skip the rest of the contract tracing section. Let's go straight to hardware. Uh, Rosita towards automatic elimination of power analysis. So, okay, so this is actually like a fixed paper, I guess, and that's pretty pretty um, cool because the the authors of these, at least some of the authors of these paper, have been breaking stuff, breaking hardware left and right using side channels, and here they're actually eliminating side channels. Um, this so Rosita seems to be a technique, uh, a code rewrite engine that eliminates uh, power analysis leakage. It uses a leakage emulator, leakage emulator, which we amended to correctly emulate leakage from the target system, and then rewrites the code to eliminate that leakage. 
Wow, these are like noise canceling headphones. Do you know how noise canceling headphones work? It's basically noise canceling headphones, but for power analysis, <laughs> we use Rosita to automatically protect mass implementations of AES and, and Xudu. What the heck is Xudu? Xudu is another symmetric um, crypto scheme. Oh, I see. Okay. By the Kachak team. Okay, got it. Um, and show the absence of observable leakage at only, only a 25%, only a 25% penalty to performance? Man, are these the margins that, uh, wow. I think so. That's uh, only a 25? Oh, well, I guess the margins are, are pretty pretty intense. When, when you're expecting uh, code to be resistance against, against, I mean, yeah, hardware level side channels, that's that's an entirely different game, right? It's really hard to, to get that. So maybe in the hardware world, this is a pretty small margin, I guess. My other car is your car, compromising the Tesla Model X keyless entry system. Well, I guess, you know, we can tell they, they hacked into a Tesla. Um, then there was before a talk about risk five scalar crypto mm -hmm. nice some some risk five coverage uh, that's the the open specification processor right yes and then cash out and sgx <laughs> how sgx fails in practice okay good i will I'm I'm willing to bet five dollars that there's a uh, the shining slide in that presentation. Cashoutattack.com seems to be the website of of their of their attack. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, and I wonder if this is breaking signals use of SGX. Uh that that would that was such a. I don't really, I don't really understand why why Signal is relying so much on SGX. the The entire model of Signal is that you don't have to trust what it is that the server is doing, right? Like, even if the server is completely just like lying constantly, it doesn't matter. And with SGX, you would, you you essentially are trusting the server not to be lying because, you know, like sure you can say okay, there's remote attestations and there's these certificates that get like produced by Intel, but I mean. Who the heck really trusts that? And I think that, I don't know, like, uh, especially if you look, so if you look at this, um, at the end of this program here at Real World Crypto, there's a talk by Signal, the Signal, uh, a member of the Signal team, Trevor Perrin, the Signal private group system and anonymous credentials supporting efficient verifiable encryption. And this is, I think that they pull this off without SGX. Better, better anonymity for groups. Better signal anonymity, and we don't use SGX. And I, I wonder why they haven't been like maybe this. This signals a move away. This signals a move away from SGX. Aha. Okay. Um, I don't know though. Uh, maybe this. Maybe this is entirely built on SGX. Who knows? Nope. There. I'm. I'm. I'm command effing the paper, and there's the word SGX does not appear inside this paper. But uh, we'll get to that. We're skipping way ahead here. Um. Yeah, so we yes. could, uh, close off the hardware session and go to formal analysis. So the first talk is uh, SOK, computer-aided cryptography. This is a wonderful paper by basically all of the giants and, well, many of the giants in uh, formal analysis. You have um, Benjamin Lips, thesis advisors, uh, 
Kartik Bhangavan and Bruno Blanchet, also my former thesis advisors. Um, Manuel Barbosa, Gilles Bars, Cass Kremers, one of the main authors of Tamarin and also very much a prolific author in formal methods and protocol verification. Uh, Kevin Liao, uh, Brian, Brian Parno. Oh, Brian Parno. And uh, yeah, that's it. This is a great paper that I think appeared on ePrint a few months ago. And it basically has a very, very um, great in-depth uh, pedagogical and useful and and much what much needed uh, state of the art sort of uh, summary of of what we're doing with computer aided cryptography in general and that covers uh, verifying protocols verifying implementations verifying primitives verifying proofs whatever they go through uh, protocol verification tools like Proverif uh, proof assistance like Cryptoverif and Cog I think they go through Cog I'm not sure. Um, and then you have uh, programming languages like FSTAR um, and uh, proof assistance like EasyCrypt and also other stuff like Daphne and, and Jasmine and Veil and VST and Y3 and, and all that like SMT solving stuff. So they cover a ton of stuff and also formally verified implementations like HackleStar, uh, Curve25519 implementations, EverCrypt and so on. So this is a great paper. You can find it on ePrint today, and I highly recommend that you look at it if you're interested in formal analysis. The way that I thought um, memory management worked in Golang in Go was extremely wrong. Uh, and so I was led to believe that you could pass structs in Golang uh, without any performance penalty, and that is extremely misleading. You have to basically use pointers, and so... Everything became a pointer, and that also made um, uh, perform. That, that was a giant headache, but it also made performance a lot better. So there are a lot of engineering improvements in preparation for real world crypto, and also we're launching this new thing called VerfPal Heroes for real world crypto, where it's like this online guide that teaches you how to use not only VerfPal but also ProVerif, CryptoVerif, Tamarin, uh, FSTAR, EasyCrypt, and Cog, and it has like this fun anime thing happening. Um. I hope one day people will recognize the research contributions of my anime. This is really my goal in life. It's you know? becoming the the emojis for papers, right? What emojis <laughs> are for secure messaging apps? Or... Uh, I don't know. I, I I really like the. I think for me, it's more meaningful than that. People think it's a marketing thing, but and I mean, oh, frankly, I mean, it kind of does have that role, right? Like it it does end up being a marketing thing, and that's nice. Um, but for me, I really think that the anime, it sounds ridiculous. Like you're not going to believe me. I think people think I'm nuts. I think the anime is a very integral part of the project. It's just, it's part of the soul of the project that doesn't work without it. You know, like for me, like doing Verfpal without all the anime is just like, there's something that's not complete. You know, like there has to be a lot of anime and, uh, I don't know. People don't get that. It's unfortunate. Okay, so moving on, uh, another invited talk by Eli Ben Sasson, scaling computations on blockchains with zk Starks. Uh, not zk Snarks, but zk Starks. I do not know what zk Starks are. Zero knowledge, scalable, transparent arguments of knowledge are a type of cryptographic proof technology. 
that enables users to share validated data or perform computations with a third party without the data or computation being revealed to the third party, also known as a zero-knowledge proof, in a way that is publicly verifiable. So a public, well, aren't, aren't, I don't know. Aren't, I thought zero-knowledge proofs were already verifiable. Maybe not, I don't know. I frankly don't know anything about this stuff. I think we need to have a guest on the show to talk to us about this stuff. Do you do you have any insights on this? I'm afraid I do not. I'm I'm not very um, knowledgeable in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, so uh, I definitely I am a little bit, but I don't really know how zk Starks work. Um, attacking threshold wallets. That's a talk by Jean Philippe Omasson and Omer Shlomovitz. Cool. Yeah, I think Jean Philippe mentioned this. They're breaking, um, they're breaking uh, wallets in the wild. Um, this work targets threshold wallet threshold signature schemes as deployed in real applications, and exploits logical vulnerabilities enabled by the extra layers of complexity added by TSS software. The attacks have concrete applications and could, for example, have been exploited to empty an organization's cold wallet, typically worth at least an eight-digit dollar figure. Damn it, Jean-Philippe. Could have bought an island. Indeed, one of our, our targets is the cold wallet system of the biggest cryptocurrency exchange, which has been fixed after our disclosure. Live a little. Could have, like, you know, bought an island, shielded it from radar. Lived, lived, lived a good life, you know. Instead, like, publishes a real-world crypto. Well, it's priorities. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, all right. Uh, this is this is like an hour and a half. I did not expect this to take so long. So I'm just going to skip the rest of the <laughs> cryptocurrency section. I'm sorry. Um, crypto for the cloud. Uh, with uh, Nick Sullivan. Okay, first one about searchable symmetric encryption. You're going to do all three, man. I am exhausted. Then, uh, yeah, I don't... Uh... In fact, in fact, in fact, Ben, you're going to do the rest of the program. I'm going to do the rest of the program. Okay, I can. Yes, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm shutting up. I've spoken way too much already. I feel very self-conscious, so please go ahead. You'll interrupt me when you have something to add. So I, I don't even, I won't even. I'm just going to sit back, relax, you know. Okay. Please, please cover the rest of the program. <laughs> So let's look into crypto for the cloud. So the first talk is uh, Swissy, system-wide security for searchable symmetric encryption. Um, So this will be about uh, some new directions in the space of searchable symmetric encryption. And um, so... Wow. Okay. I don't know a lot about uh, searchable symmetric encryption, so I guess I I have to to listen to this presentation. They focus not only on leakage from the encrypted indexes, but also yeah, on the system-wide security. Okay, that's how why why the title of this talk is like that. Okay, so looking forward to this. Then we have in-band key negotiation, trusting the attacker by Sophie Schmieck and Tai Duong. 
Um, so this research is important for systems used by Amazon AWS. All right. And um, then we have a third talk called Pancake, Frequency Smoothing for Encrypted Data. Okay, okay. No, no, no. Yeah. Hold on. You, you can't just like say, this is important for the <laughs> AWS and then like just skip over. Like, yeah, come on. You know, like, what do they mean by trusting the attacker? Oh, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's pretty, it's pretty provocative, you know? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Since when are we trusting attackers? Hold on. So in order to evaluate a privileged cryptographic primitive, uh, say the crypto ciphertext or second signature at endpoint needs to know the raw key material. No kidding. The algorithm, including all parameters and the ciphertext and signature. Uh, so for example, JWT. Okay, great. The seemingly innocuous design has led to countless broken implementations and vulnerabilities, including the infamous ALG-NON. While the security community likes to pick on JWT, we show that JWT is not the only system that succumbs to what we call them call in band protocol negotiation attacks. We display a showcase of all the new attacks in widely deployed standards and systems, including AWS S3 crypto. Right, but what do they mean by trusting the attacker, though? We found that the root cause of these vulnerabilities is a failure to answer this basic question. What is a key? What is a key? It's getting pretty existential. Many systems, standards, or libraries consider a key consisting of only the raw secret material. Uh, we present how Google uses Tink to ensure that even software that has not been reviewed by cryptography engineers will not be vulnerable to this class of attack. Well, does that really mean that you're trusting the attacker, though? Maybe that's that's about the algnon thingy. What do you mean? Um, was it that the adversary could choose algnon and then the implementation yes. uses it? So you kind of trust the attacker to to indicate the algorithm you use. Maybe, maybe that's where the... I have no idea. All right, moving on. Um, so please Pen go ahead, but you, you can't just like say that like this, this is used by Amazon and just like move on, okay? Yeah, come on. I'm doing this for the first time. I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm trying to do Thank better. you, Ben. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Pancake, frequency smoothing for encrypted data stores. So this talk will present design, analysis, and implementation of Pancake, which they claim to be the first system to protect key-value stores from access pattern leakage attacks. All right. And they do that with only a small constant factor um, for the bandwidth overhead. But will it protect from maple syrup leakage attacks? Ha <laughs> ha! Because it's a pancake. Okay, I'm no, get it. Go. <laughs> please, please continue. <laughs> um, they they have a formal security model, and and explain why they capture realistic attacks. Okay, that's good. And well, finally, as um, Suggested by the title, they will describe the frequency smoothing mechanism, which transforms plain text accesses into uniformly distributed accesses, and also these accesses will be encrypted. Um, they use this pancake system in production in three different key value stores. 
and we'll also talk about the practicality, like uh, present benchmarks. All right, okay, and Pancake seems to be a lot faster than uh, recent ORAM uh, systems, non-recursive ORAM systems. So that sounds interesting. ORAM is... Last section. Oh, sorry, Oblivious RAM, go on. Yeah, yeah. So then there is a an invite talk. Um, oh, sorry, you were. I think you were saying something about ORAM and I cut you off. Oh, I just want to say ORAM is also one of these primitives used by Signal actually in uh, together with their SGX um, system. So mm -hmm. anyway, so uh, invited talk by Anna Lujanskaya on privacy preserving authentication from theory to practice. Okay, that sounds interesting. I'm, I wonder how this is related to WebAuth and um, also the last section uh, session will be on anonymity. That will be three talks. Uh, one on anonymous authenticated logging at scale. They start by saying that logging infrastructure is a crucial component of WhatsApp and other modern services. It's used to understand performance and reliability of apps. And they present a redesign of a logging framework, which makes it possible to upload logs anonymously and mitigates risks such as accidental logging or misuse of user identifiers. I wonder if this can be used in conjunction with contact tracing. <laughs> that's, that's the question of 2020, right? This <laughs> <laughs> is like the new blockchain, right? Yeah. It's this very pessimistic, dystopian alternative to, I wonder if this can be used with blockchain. Right. I wonder if this can be used with the technology that's supposed to save us from the apocalypse, you know? Yeah. So apparently they deployed this in WhatsApp. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, okay, nice. Although I, I, I had never WhatsApp crash on me, but who knows what they are logging in uh, in hiding. Uh, I don't think that this really matters. I mean, all you have to do is just look at uh, the way that WhatsApp is. So WhatsApp um, siphons your address book and sends it over to Facebook and then correlates that with the rest of what Facebook knows about you. And so this is like one of those. So recently, a bunch of Facebook engineers published a paper about this new they published a new paper on Usenix on this new like verifiable deletion mechanism that Facebook had come up with to verifiably delete your social media data such that it's 100% deleted, very deleted. And um, you can just log into your Facebook and go into your settings and click on like download an archive of all my uh, Facebook data and you'll get like messages that you deleted from your Facebook 20 years ago or something, not literally 20 years ago, like five, six years ago. And... I look like the end-to-end -end encryption, I think, rollout in WhatsApp was very consequential and good. But aside from that, when I see stuff like this, I'm wondering, look, like you're 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 harvesting my my entire address book in the clear. So if you tell me like we have these anonymous logging things, like what is that 
give me really you know it's like it's like breaking into my front door and leaving my windows intact yeah right i mean so maybe if signal did that would would mean a bit more um well maybe they can because this is published research maybe i mean who knows maybe it's only a indeed I mean, it looks like it, it could be published research because the author list is quite long. It's not just like a talk. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, we're an hour 45 minutes. We're just going to skip to the last talk. Uh, the Signal Private Group System and Anonymous Credentials Supporting Efficient Verifiable Encryption. We propose a talk based on a recent project to design and implement a new system to privately manage groups in the Signal Messenger. Oh, these are the new groups Yeah. in Signal. Uh, literally called new groups. There is an associated research paper to appear at CCS. Uh, okay, so this is a CCS talk. In this paper, we present a system for maintaining a membership list of users in a group designed for use in the Signal Messenger Secure Messaging app. The goal is to support private groups where membership information is readily available to all group members but hidden from the service provider um, or anyone outside the group. In the proposed solution, a central server stores the group membership in the form of encrypted entries. Members of the group authenticate the server. All right, so more anonymity, better improvements in signal for groups using uh, what appears to be um, uh, verifiable. Isn't this kind of like a form of multi-party computation? No. It surely is. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Um, okay, great. I am exhausted. That's yeah, that's that's it. We're... Actually, we, we should have like counted the number of talks and like yeah, this program is nuts. Done like a, a basic multiplication just to see how much. Uh... Can you imagine? Like it takes two hours to go through the program. Yeah, I mean it's 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 four days of uh, really good program, really amazing talks. So. Hmm. I'm looking forward to uh, almost next week, right? Yeah, it starts on January 11th, so that's in yeah, 10 days, a bit less. Yeah, that's in nine, uh, eight days. Well, by the time this podcast is released, it'll be in less than a week, six days. Yeah, did you register for, for Real World Crypto, Nadim? Absolutely. Did you? I did. I think our listeners should register as well. Um, I think registration is technically free, but not really because you have to pay the $50 IACR yearly membership fee because this is the first IACR conference of the year. That's right. So I had to pay it, but... Um... But you get all these benefits, you know? You're, me you're a member of the International Association for Cryptologic Research. Yeah, and you can attend Eurocrypt, Public Key Crypto, Crypto, Theoretical Crypto, and Asia Crypt, Asia Crypt, and, and um, Chess, Crypto Crypt. A lot of conferences that probably will all be online in 2021 as well. So it's a pretty good. Please, deal. please don't, don't say that. I really hope I really hope that that's not the case. I mean, I'm just I'm dying for this to be over. 
kind of feels like just um, I, I think there's going to be like this sort of explosion of people traveling once once this is done. It's just like everyone's going to be on a plane constantly going everywhere. Yeah, like undo all the savings we did. Probably that will happen. <laughs> you've been you've been uh, stuck in Switzerland for a while, huh? Yeah. Uh, so Sweden, Sweden, Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nicer than Paris. <laughs> yes, more nature, uh, easier access. To I have nature. I have no idea what it's like, but I'm sure it's nicer than Paris. Yes. <laughs> um. Cool. I'm glad to hear it. So you're you're fine. You're having a good time. Yeah, I'm having a good time. I'm, uh, well, I mean, working from home, <laughs> taking the occasional walk outside. We had snow. I don't know if that's a thing that happens in Paris these days. Uh, Not this year so far. Yeah. Although, just by chance, because we've had below uh, freezing temperatures, but not rain simultaneously. Yeah. Um, And, well, yeah, I'm heading into the third year of my PhD, so feeling uh feeling that the end is coming <laughs> hopefully the end is coming only for your phd and not for us all um all right on that on that wonderful note so yeah thanks for joining us for this um um kind of weird one-off episode i hope we hold it off properly i didn't expect this to last so long um so i hope we managed to give you insight into the program for this real real world crypto and um we'll hopefully do another one hopefully shorter episode uh after the conference and uh ben thank you so much for for helping me do this my pleasure thank you nadim absolutely so uh, and thanks for tuning in i hope you guys have a good time at real world crypto and see you again next week on cryptography fm 